Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Snippet Sports Science, proudly brought to you by EliteInform.com. Today, we have got a uh, first author, Dr. Kate Spilsbury, with us talking about tapering strategies. Welcome aboard, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Kate is originally from the UK. She did a PhD on tapering strategy for elite endurance performance at Loughborough University and the English Institute of Sport. And for us and myself personally, we do so much in the world of strength and power. And obviously, endurance sports get a little bit perhaps neglected on the podcast. So rather than talking about something that I'm not an expert on, really happy to have Kate here because this, you know, she's done so much work in this space. So I guess, Kate, just a little bit of a background about your history with your work. We worked with some really great athletes. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I uh, studied for my PhD with the English Institute of Sport and Loughborough University. So that was a really good relationship because it gave me access to some of the country's best endurance athletes um, to study. So that was great. And then I also worked as lead physiologist for British Athletics after that for the uh, Rio Olympic cycle and in preparation for the London World Championships in 2017. So yeah, my expertise definitely lies within endurance physiology. And I'm now based in Brisbane and I'm lead sports science consultant for Heart Performance. What is Harper Performance? Yeah, so Harper Performance, it's a SEUK certified um, non-profit social enterprise. And we specialize in the provision of accessible, sustainable and locally driven performance sport to disadvantaged sports people in the developing world. Wow. And countries currently you work with? Yeah, um, so we're currently engaged in a project in partnership with Football for Good um, in Uganda. So we're trying to help aspirational footballers in East Africa um, kind of reach their full potential and level the playing field athletes across the world. That's um, really great work. Great to hear. And I guess the exciting thing for me, I remember I've met you a couple of times in, in Brisbane. Obviously, you worked with British athletics during the Olympic cycle. First person that comes to mind is Mo Farah. And I guess also well, the British teams have been quite successful of, of the last few Olympic cycles. Yeah, definitely. And I think British Athletics developed a really strong endurance program that involved a very comprehensive altitude strategy that's been going since 2010, 2011. And, you know, that's the results of that are really coming to light now. And we're starting to get you know, obviously Mo is a, a fantastic athlete, um, but we're also starting to get some other medalists as well who've kind of come through the system and, and been exposed to those strategies. So it's great to see the new generation coming through following in most footsteps. And when you talk about altitude, was that you go to altitude camps or in-house in terms of sleeping and altitude tents? Yeah, it's a combination between multiple exposures to altitude in places like Font Rameau, Kenya, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And the use of altitude tents and also some training sessions done in the altitude chamber at the EIS as well. So it's a, it's a full package and it's um, a strategy that's very multidisciplinary as well. So it involves a lot of other different practitioners trying to optimize performance and optimize adaptation whilst mini minimizing the injury risk as well. Yeah, definitely. And was that your first major exposure into track and field? Yes, that's right. I've always done a bit of endurance running myself. So you know, I had a keen interest anyway, but that was my first sort of exposure into working in the sport as well. When you went into your PhD about tapering strategies, was that because you had a love for running and endurance sports or just an opportunity or amalgamation of many opportunities coming together? Yeah, I guess it's a bit of both, really. Um, the opportunity to work with English Institute of Sport, you know, was always a big 
goal of mine. And so to have a PhD that was very applied was definitely something that drew me towards it. And in terms of tapering, you know, from my own experiences as an amateur endurance athlete, sort of how one strategy, which seemingly worked so well in one competition, can work terribly the next. You know, that was always kind of something that did fascinate me. So it was a real opportunity to look into a, a strategy or an intervention that can have such a large impact on performance. But I guess looking at the literature, it's a topic that we still know relatively little about. Also, when you're looking at the athletes you're working with, this is elite athletes and very rarely in anyone doing a PhD, they get that opportunity to do that. So that, firstly, that must have been really exciting. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why there isn't that much literature out there on tapering because it's quite difficult. It's a difficult topic anyway to recruit for, particularly when you're asking athletes to do less, not more. It doesn't usually sit very well with them. So yeah, to have the opportunity to have access to Britain's best athletes was great. You know, I have to admit some of my later studies that were a bit more invasive didn't necessarily have those top level athletes involved. But where possible, I tried to keep the performance standard of the athlete as high as possible, really, to try and to be able to generalize my results back to the, the elite athletes. And I guess a nice way to start this podcast is, you know, in our initial conversation was, I guess, the general concept of tapering. And then I guess if you can then take us on the journey through the methodology in the study and then the outcomes. Yeah, so tapering has been described as a progressive reduction in training loads prior to important competition. And the aim is to really reduce that accumulated fatigue from daily training with the ultimate aim of, of maximizing performance. There has been a meta-analysis on um, the available literature, which suggests a reduction in training volume of about 40 to 60 percent, whilst trying to maintain training volume and, and training frequency. And the duration bit of a trickier one to sort of recommend and there have been positive results from tapers from six days to four weeks and depending on the sport and the level of fatigue going into the taper but roughly about two weeks is what was recommended in the meta-analysis so that kind of gives you a bit of background really to the recommendations and when I came to my PhD there was actually no evidence on what the current practices of elite athletes were so before I could start kind of unpicking those and looking for opportunities to optimize them, I really needed to work out what the current practice was. As we mentioned, luckily, my PhD was in collaboration with the EIS and I had access to those um, high-performance athletes at British Athletics. Um, so I recruited approximately 40 elite athletes and they were from 800 meters right through to the marathon. And they were all competing at senior national and international level. Uh, both male and female athletes involved. So there was no way that males and females should taper differently or that they respond differently to the taper. So I included them both in my cohort. And I collected the data via an online survey to find the last full week of training prior to the taper. And then the training during the taper itself, which was specifically leading up to a major competition. And the taper was not limited to one week. It was as long um, or as short as the uh, athletes had planned. Um, so I validated that self-report with GPS in a subgroup of habitual users. Would have been great to have GPS data for every athlete, but as we know, they don't all use GPS, don't always use their watches for every single session. So that wasn't possible, unfortunately. Once I got that data, 
I broke the training load down into the component parts, so frequency, volume, and intensity. And again, I break it down into continuous running and then interval training as well. Um, so I calculated the tapered training as a percentage of regular training for volume and frequency. And then the intensity was a percentage of the race pace. And then obviously the tapered duration in days. And then I further separated that data into three groups. So middle distance being 800 and 1500. Long distance being 3K steeplechase, 10K, and marathon runners as a separate group. So moving on to the results, as you'd expect, there were clear event-specific differences uh, between strategies. So the marathon runners, for example, implemented a longer taper than the middle distance or long distance, um, so two weeks compared to about six days. Um, they also reduced their continuous volume by a lot greater percentage compared to middle distance and long distance. And then there was also some differences in intensity. So middle distance actually ran faster during the taper than they did um, in the week prior, whereas marathon runners ran slower. I was kind of expecting to find those differences between groups. But one really interesting finding was that there was large variation even within those event groups. So athletes in the same event competing at the same level were actually all doing very different things for their tapers. So that was quite interesting and not something I'd necessarily predicted. but. Something I wanted to delve into a little bit deeper and understand why this was happening. So I looked into the relationships between prior training load and the proportion of change during the taper. And there's actually some really strong associations. So regardless of event, essentially those who had the highest training volumes before taper were reducing the volume most aggressively. So potentially in an attempt to alleviate a greater level of fatigue. There was also a strong relationship between prior training volume and the duration of the taper. So again, those with the highest training volumes were tapering longer before competition, which I guess is kind of intuitive. You know, the harder you train, the sort of more you need to recover. Um, but I wasn't expecting such differences kind of even within events. One thing that we, we hadn't actually planned to do that the opportunity arose because of these relationships was to create some prediction equations. So I was able to use multiple linear regression to create prediction equations for each of those taper variables, so volume, frequency, intensity, based on the prior training load. So if you're doing X many kilometers before the taper, uh, the equations will tell you what percentage of that to do. So that's a really nice tangible tool that might help coaches and athletes design their taper. So I guess a word of caution with that is that Obviously, the results are based on elite athletes and collapsed across events. So, you know, it might not be uh, generalizable to everyone. And, you know, there are any predictions. So there is some room for error. So I would suggest that only use as a guide, which can then be adapted and modified appropriately for each individual. And just putting my coaching hat on here. And once again, we urge the listeners to, to get the paper out. And, you know, table three, it's really good in that, although you're saying to people out there to, with a word of caution, what it actually does, though, in, in my mind, I think it actually starts to get coaches to think about how they train their athletes. And if you could classify in terms of, you know, is it interval, continuous, what kind of volume and intensity, and start to think about the relationships of the two and say, well, as you said, traditionally, people would look at having you know, that taper one to two weeks out and that would just be like a blanket approach. Whereas this here, they can say, well, actually, there's a few things that go into it 
And I think every coach has their own special source or their special training formula out there. And what it does with me is I'm just looking at it and going, wow, it's actually making me start to think of several different variables that could improve my athlete's taper. Yeah, for sure. And I think whilst there is a good definition of tapering, I think it is quite simplistic in the way that it refers to a progressive reduction training load, because that really doesn't tease out those intricacies around, you know, how you should treat volume, frequency, intensity differently during the taper. It's not just a case of reducing everything and just doing less of everything. There are quite kind of specific requirements um, for each of those to make sure that you are finding that balance between reducing fatigue, but also maximizing performance. So yeah, it's good that you've pointed that out because it does highlight that there are several components to think about and different variables should be manipulated in different ways and how they complement each other. And when you came up with this data, did you have the opportunity to present this to the coaches at all? And if so, what was the response? Yeah, um, I think obviously it was Olympic year, so it was quite an important time. And I think, you know, athletes probably weren't necessarily willing to to change up what they did at, at that time. It was very much just kind of capturing um, what they were doing. Um, yeah, I think the coaches were quite interested to see it broken down in that way. And certainly when I spoke to a lot of them, there was very few that actually took a scientific approach um, or use scientific literature uh, to prescribe their or to design their taper. It was much more of a kind of trial and error methodology and using their previous experience and using their own sort of coaching intuition. So, you know, to actually have some scientific data to kind of show what they were doing, I think was really useful. And do you think that when you start talking to the coaches, as you, you said, it's it's a blend of art and science and intuition that it's perhaps just evolved over time? Did any of them comment how this process, you know, that reflective process may have been for them? Yeah, I think it would have been really interesting actually to collect the data from the coaches as well as the athletes. I mean, obviously, we did validate with the GPS what the athletes were, data athletes were giving us in terms of self-report but it would have also been nice to kind of capture where the coaches were kind of going with their papers especially to kind of understand why there were such big differences even within events so i'd love to have, have had that data and yeah that, that would have been really interesting but unfortunately I, I don't have that and a question that perhaps a lot of people ask you had men and women in your group were there any differences between those groups yeah, that's actually not something I could look at because I just didn't have the numbers to compare men and women in the separate groups. So um, I didn't actually look at that in the end. But as far as I know, there isn't any evidence out there to suggest that there should be any difference. I guess it'd be interesting to hear from your opinion from the strength and conditioning side, whether there's any difference between males and females and, and how you kind of reduce that load down prior to competition. In terms of the strength work that I've done, I find that males, I'll tend to do just a progressive drop taper over a longer period, perhaps two weeks, whereas females, I'll do it quite quickly, almost train them quite hard the week before. They'll have a solid session the week of, beginning of the week, and then, yeah, perhaps a shorter taper in terms of the strength work in power speed athletes, I find in females. I find they tend to just lose their strength just a little bit quicker. Yeah. And, and I'm quite strong on athletes holding their strength levels during competition. 
So that's yeah. perhaps the major one for me. I sold similar principles in terms of, you know, intensity for me is key. You know, they're coming into the gym, you know, and they're still producing high percentages of their RM. So intensity is very high, but their volumes are dropping down. So that's very similar between the two. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, making sure that the males, I give them a little bit longer. And especially like, say, hitting close to their one RM. So even if they're coming close to a PB, especially in that two, two to three week period leading in, I'll actually hold them off that. So just find it takes a few weeks for them to get over a new one RM in the gym. Yeah. And if they're going to hit a major comp, it's like, well, let's just hold back on it a little bit. And that's where I use uh, velocity based training or velocities to, to know what kind of levels I'm hitting at. Yeah, that's really interesting and that's that's really, you know, similar in terms of dropping that volume but keeping the intensity and I think that's that's the real key in finding that balance. So, yeah, it's really interesting to hear. And talking about that actually is I work with two decathletes and one's a world junior champion, the other one was a silver medalist and Olympic representative as well and their coach will give them a complete week off leading into a major competition and where as a strength coach I'm going, well, you know, it'd be really nice to actually do a session or something light activation but as he rules the the coaching structure and the periodization i trust in him and so far he continually produces good results with his athletes most of the time i work with the coaches i try to get a little bit in there and i'm actually quite big into hormonal priming and you know optimizing hormonal um, profiles and athletes and even looking at terms of day of competition what can we be doing yeah, and I guess that's part of the tapering strategy. You know, what are we doing leading into the actual competition and on the competition day to ensure optimal performance? Yeah, definitely. That's really important. The taper does flow all the way in right to, to on the day. And there are definitely some, some strategies that can improve performance. And actually, um, I've just had another paper accepted in applied physiology, nutrition and metabolism which looks a bit more into the manipulation of training intensity in those final days, the taper in the middle distance athletes. So maybe that's something I can come and chat about on another podcast. But I guess if we go back to just comparing some of the results from my study with the recommendations in the literature, actually there were quite big differences in terms of the recommendations versus what our athletes were doing for their volume reduction. So our athletes were quite conservative and the meta-analysis that I mentioned before recommended about 40 to 60% reduction. Actually, our middle distance runners, for example, were only reducing by about 30% over the half the duration as well. So again, that was something that I wasn't expecting and I wanted to look into more. And it was also there was some similar evidence from elite athletes from winter sports, so elite cross-country skiers and biathletes. And in these studies, they had a lot more sort of longitudinal data on their athletes. And they suggested that because of the quite busy competition schedule and the need for a sort of lengthy peaking period, the athletes had to maintain fitness during that time. So actually, they had a larger reduction in volume um, quite a lot earlier than for that major competition. So rather than in the sort of immediate build-up to the competition, they were dropping volume much earlier, but then holding, you know, a decent enough level to maintain fitness while still being kind of recovered enough to compete. So if you're competing frequently prior to the competition, you don't have the same accumulated fatigue you need to alleviate. So you don't need that great big drop off. And I think because some of the experimental studies and where those recommendations came from, they're typically focusing on improving performance in a single event. 
Whereas in athletics, for example, they don't take into account that the athlete might do a few sort of early season races to sharpen up. They'll then have to do some high quality races to get qualifying times. Then there's the trial race. And in the UK, you know, you have to have the qualifying time and, and finish in the top two positions to then be selected. So actually, you've had quite a busy racing period before you're actually in your final build up to the competition. So that maybe explains a little bit why we're not seeing as reductions in training volume. And if I was to do my study again, that's one thing I would certainly have done. I would have recorded prior training load for a much longer duration and from the beginning or before the beginning of that competitive season. Having said that, I also think anecdotally, there's a bit of a fear among athletes about doing less training and the potential risk of detraining. And that might contribute to why they're slightly more concerned. The research would suggest that you can reduce volume quite dramatically and still have big increases in performance as long as you maintain or slightly increase the intensity and maintain frequency during the taper. And perhaps this is why, anecdotally again, there's some evidence that athletes can underperform in a major championships because they've not backed off, but then, you know, they bounce back with a PB a week later in a competition that doesn't even matter. So, you know, it is, again, really important to, to find that balance. So potentially they haven't backed off enough. They've competed, perhaps not competed well, but still rested because they're in a major championship type environment where there is a lot of downtime, competed the following week. So they've actually had that little bit more rest, backed off even again, perhaps a little bit more relaxed as well, and then yeah. do a PB. So I guess just reiterating that point about, yeah, maybe they do need to back off. That's right. And, you know, the races that they perhaps go through in the rounds of that championship still provides them with that stimulus for the intensity. But like you say, they're just not doing the volume during that time. So then actually their peak performance comes too late. Yeah, that's for sure. Do you think just um, thinking a little bit laterally in terms of the subjects in, I guess, traditional literature, you know, where you say they have a larger drop in volume in that if they're more recreational, they're probably rushing to do more volume because they're not training. They don't have a bigger training base as elite athletes, perhaps, and they have to have a bigger drop in intensity and in volume just to compete. Yeah. And I think sort of one of my key take home messages from this work is that, you know, you should always consider what you're tapering from. So if a recreational athlete, you know, is under heavy fatigue, regardless of whether they've done 100 miles or 50 miles, you know, they'll need to taper more aggressively. So it's very much dependent on what's gone beforehand and the sort of level of fatigue that you're undergoing. But it's very difficult to describe an optimal taper that will work for everybody. And particularly, you know, like you say, taking into account the training history and, and the training load, but also the individual physiology, because that element responses to the actual training that's done during the taper and also the individual rate of recovery. So that's something that's difficult to measure and it's easier said than done. And perhaps you know, trial and error is more important in those circumstances to work out what's right for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what a lot of people want is they just want a cookie cutter approach. And as we know, elite sport is not as simple as just do A, B and C and you get D. There's a lot more things to it. And, you know, just referring back to your table three is, is a great example of that there's different variables and it's still simple. It You know, it's looking at continuous interval looking at frequency and intensity and volume and simple things to think about and say, well, they do have that relationship. I think that really highlights the major thing here. There's you got seven different variables which could give a predictive model for optimal performance. Yeah, and key being that it's all relative to, to what's gone before. And you know as well as I do that athletes are habitual creatures. Like 
they like routine and they like to do the things in the same way, but I can pretty much guarantee that they'll approach every single major competition having done something different in training. So the taper shouldn't be the same. It should be different because they might have not raced as much in the lead up to one competition than another, or they might have had a lower training load because of illness and injuries and there's less to recover from, or they might have pre-qualified. So they don't actually need to do all those races and they maintain higher training load going into competition. So there's slightly more to recover from. So I do think that it should change every time and it should be a reflection of what the athletes actually done and their ability to recover from that. Then throwing in some of the other challenges, you know, you've got travel, you've got jet lag if you're competing in a, you know, major event overseas. You know, you might have different environments to, to cope with. So if you're preparing at altitude or preparing in the heat and for those things, you need to adjust your taper accordingly. And we don't have really definitive answers in the literature to suggest, you know, how you should modify the taper for those sort of environmental challenges, but certainly need to take them into consideration. And the groups that you work with just out of interest uh, may or may not happen. You talked about long-haul travel with the athletes that you worked with. Did they have long-haul travel and did you see a difference in terms of how the coaches may have approached it? Yeah, I mean, we'd always have quite a comprehensive travel strategy, provide lots of advice for the athletes before they traveled overseas. And one thing that stressed was quite important not to underestimate travel. So you might not even be crossing time zones, but there's still that element of travel fatigue. Just because you might not be able to train that day doesn't mean it's a rest day. Yes. Often there's a lot of time on feet, you know, you're dragging heavy luggage, there might be early starts or late finishes. For some people, it's just generally quite a stressful experience. So we'd always try and make sure I've had and make sure that everything was thought of and try to minimize stress as, as much as possible. And particularly around our altitude preparation camps and going into competition straight from altitude, there would be definitely conversations with the coaches, you know, making sure that athletes were backing off training enough before going into that travel and then into the competition. That's fascinating on its own as perhaps just another chat as well, like the role of altitude how to best get the effects from your time at altitude. That, that, that would be another great chat as well to understand. You know, one thing that is quite important as well to consider is that, you know, mentally the taper can be quite tough for people. You know, they're not used to doing less. But just to make sure athletes are as disciplined about recovery as they are about training. So it sounds a bit cheesy, but, you know, train like a champion, recover like a champion. That's a good mantra to have during the taper just to kind of get over that kind of feeling of uncertainty about doing less. That's right. And would you also then suggest, you know, the eating or the nutritional strategies associated with that? If you know you're starting to taper, starting to feel better, you're used to eating a certain food load in your experiences, does any changes there with nutritional intake? Yeah, for sure. So firstly we'd recommend that athletes reach their body composition actually before the taper starts. Just because you can't recover optimally if you're in a negative energy balance. Um, so that was one thing to do actually before the taper. And then on the flip side, you might need to adjust your energy take during the taper if your energy expenditure is lower from the reduced training. So two things to, to kind of think about really, one for and one during. 
That's really good. For me, it's perhaps made me think about some other elements to take into consideration with respect to tapers that not ever I thought about. I love prediction models, knowing that they are specific for athletes. And I guess some real practical take-homes there in terms of ensuring that your nutritional strategies follow the taper as well, body composition, and just taking into effect things such as travel. I totally agree with that. Great. Well, it's been great chatting and thanks for the opportunity. And just before we leave, obviously, there'd be people out there who want to get a hold of you. What's the best way of doing that? Yeah, either um, my Twitter, which is at Kate Spilsbury, or via LinkedIn as well. We'll put that all up on the website and also through our socials. Uh, so don't worry about there if you don't catch her details. So thank you very much again for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And thank you listeners for coming on board today. Uh, remember to rate us on iTunes, visit our sponsor, EliteForm.com and tune in next week. Thanks for coming.